Welcome to The Well. I am Brandon Edgens. And I'm Anson Mount. And this is called The Drop. Yeah, this is a segment we've been recording recently while we're between seasons, just as a way of checking in with our listeners and let you know some of the things we've been reading and watching and experiencing so that you can too, if you're looking for something to do in this COVID time of ours. And it turns out that uh, because this COVID time of ours is lasting a little bit longer than anyone thought, that's not really true. I think we... I think we knew we just were kind of in denial about it. I mean, like to have the experts tell you this is going to go on for a while and you're kind of like, okay, but really this long (laughs) and get kind of weary of it. So that's why the, what are you doing? Um, uh, section. Yeah. It's kind of dry. It's kind of going on for a while and become kind of a thing, which I don't mind because there's a lot less editing on our part. (laughs) Yes, that's true. So if you're new to the show, um, you might want to go back and start at the beginning uh, where we have uh, more of our our regular episodes, which require a lot more work and editing and and are much more polished. Uh, Or you can listen to these two and and enjoy. um, Yeah. Yeah. We want to set the scene for us in case anyone was wondering what the sound is in the background. Yeah, we're on my screened-in porch uh, fire going in the fireplace and it's uh we're in the gloaming it's uh about to be dark and uh it's getting earlier and earlier i really i hadn't that had never really affected me until i think last year really for some reason yeah the lack of light what happened just you know my mood is just mm. a little lower at this time of the year because of the light the lack of light i think Mm-hmm. I wonder if it's, I have no idea, I'm just spitballing here. I wonder if it's a thing that you feel uh, more acutely as you get older. Good question. No idea. It just seems like children have just like an, an internal source of energy that doesn't matter. Yeah. You know, teenagers, you know, have an internal source of energy, internal clock where that's, it doesn't matter <laughs> what the sun is doing. <laughs> but as you get, maybe because I'm starting to feel it a little bit too. Yeah. And, you know, I used to be a night owl, but uh, these nights are dragging on longer than they used to, I think. Inflation. In Sweden, a lot of people, they, almost everybody has a full-spectrum light box Yeah, that they right. turn on in the, in the winter because they get so little light. Right. Have you seen, I think I pointed this out before, have you seen those old, uh, it was supposed to be like UV therapy for uh, Russian children living like north, uh, mm-hmm. like, like in like Siberia where there was like no, like months and months and months of no light. And it was thought that, uh, well, it's not thought, it's true, that you absorb this UV light more efficiently through mucosal tissue, like mouth and nose and stuff. So you can go online and look it up. There are pictures of uh, these Russian children, you know, usually wearing like swim shorts, you know, so they're pretty much naked. And they're standing around this incredibly, incredibly bright uh, UV light source. And it just looks like the cover of a sci-fi novel. You know, they're wearing the, the little protective glasses. And then when they decided that getting it into the mucosal membrane was more efficient, now they're around the big light and they have like a tube of light that they're kind of sucking on. So it's like, it looks like a fluorescent tube that's just, that just terminates inside their mouth, which is really what it is. So it just looks like if, if it wasn't explained to you, you would think, oh, this is a scene from some sci-fi film or some kind of like dystopian thing. But like, no, this, and it's actually old. It's actually from the, like the 60s, 70s. I don't know if they do it anymore. I think it was based on some science that has since been you know, course corrected. We got, we got a, a large UV unit, uh, that's up in the bedroom. It it arrived before you got here. Uh, Dara 
had it prescribed to her because of her uh, eczema. Mm-hmm. And thank God insurance covered it. It's a $10,000 piece of equipment. What? Huge. Yeah, so maybe I should uh, start using that. Yeah. Turn that thing, especially if we've already spent this much money on it, you might as well. Leave it on yeah. all the time. Yeah. Imagine how much how much energy you'll have and what a great mood you'll be in if you just like blast that thing all night while you're trying to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> Wake up sunburned on one side of your face. Um, so on with the uh, the recommendations and stuff. Where do you want to start? Sure. I, I mean, I have to thank you for introducing us to Pen15. Um, oh. That we, man, that is so good. It's on Hulu. Seventh grade is going to be so amazing. It's going to be really, really good. It's going to be like the best year of our lives. Oh, Shuji, get off the it's half hour single camera comedy uh, starring. Do you remember the, the actress's names? It's. Um, oh, I'm terrible because I only remember one of them, which is worse. Yeah. yeah they're yeah. both great. Like Maya Erskine. Yeah. And. They're wonderful. I'm going to look it up. That's no excuse. Sure. But. Uh, Anna something. It, it, they play. Um, the, the show starts first day of seventh grade. Uh, and th- these actresses are, are in their 30s. <laughs> but kind of doesn't matter because they are so good at playing themselves at that age. Uh, you can tell they have a tremendously good time making the show. Um, it's very well written. There's two seasons so far, and we just breezed right through it. It's a, it's a wonderfully funny show. Anna Conkle. Anna Conkle, that's right. Yeah, in my Irish... And they, they, and they kind of... It's based on their memories... Um, of, of you know that they had of themselves being in middle school and the thing that we've talked about this show a lot i think the thing that i think i love about it so much is that the the very same thing that makes a moment funny at the very same time is the exact same thing that makes it tragic and it, it, it somehow manages to tackle like really serious stuff without ever once seeming serious I don't think they're they're not out to do that. They're not trying to tackle anything. They're just being honest yeah. about what it's like to be that age and wanting to be more grown up than you are and like that process that very awkward process of thinking you know what an adult thing to do is when you really don't. <laughs> You're still a child. <laughs> it's amazing. And yeah, they're so massively talented. I hate them. <laughs> <laughs> what have you been watching? There's, it seems like they're all documentaries. Um uh, one and there, I think the, this one is on. I think you saw this one too. The social dilemma. Yeah, on Netflix. Yeah, by Jeff Orlowski. When you go to Google and type in "climate change is," you're going to see different results depending on where you live and the particular things that Google knows about your interests. That's not by accident. That's a design technique. What I want people to know is that everything they're doing online is being watched, is being tracked. Every single action you take is carefully monitored and recorded. A lot of people think Google's just a search box and Facebook's just a place to see what my friends are doing. What they don't realize is there's entire teams of engineers whose job is to use your psychology against you. It just considers social media, what social media is doing to doing to us as a culture and how it works. And that's where I think this documentary really shines because they get the insiders from, you know, ex-executives from Facebook. I was the co-inventor of the Facebook like button. I was the president of Pinterest. Google. Twitter. Instagram. There were meaningful changes happening around the world because of these platforms. 
I think we were naive about the flip side of that coin. Um, it's really eye-opening, uh, and it's pretty much all led by this one guy, Tristan Harris, who was a design ethicist at Google. And it seems to be all kind of based around his message and his work of basically realizing that it was unethical to design a machine, design software that is addictive, that is designed to engineer behavior. And when you get down into like what these algorithms do, which is what they do in this documentary, it is, it'll make you want to throw away your phone or at least delete the apps. It'll do things like uh, if you haven't been on in a long time, it'll start pushing back, trying to figure out where you are and why you're not on social media. It'll go through your history and say, oh, didn't he do a Google search for someone that our, our algorithm uh, shows was probably a girlfriend or somebody had a crush on. Well, they just joined a new social media platform. Let's send him a push notification that Jessica's on and says hi. You know, like, mm -hmm. and then the first thing they do before you can find out what Jessica is up to, you know, because it's very hard to resist that. The first thing they're going to do is hit you with an ad for something maybe you looked for three months ago and there's been a 20% drop on it in price. You know, like, they... They know you too well. They know us too well. The statistic that really kind of got me, well, horrified me, was the, uh, the, the stats on the rise in self-harm amongst teenage girls. Uh, see, social media became available on cell phones in 2009, which is around the time a lot of these girls that they're studying here would have been in middle school. And so starting from there, there has been... Uh, an increase in hospitalizations from self-harm for teenage girls, let's see, age 15 to 19, it's gone up 62%. Mm. From age 10 to 14, which used to be almost not even on the charts, 190%. Wow. It has tripled in about 10 years. Uh, it's, just, it's really, I mean, and you can't really ascribe it to anything else. I mean, if you look at the graph, it just skyrockets as soon as, social media becomes available on on smartphones where the kids have them, you know, all the time, you know, can really use them to do a lot of, a lot of social damage on each other. But yeah. Yeah. We as humans seem to have this habit of, uh, where a bunch of seemingly good moral people can contribute to making a system that is deeply immoral. Mm hmm. And knowing, realizing that we're doing that and being unable to stop. Right. Um, yeah, it's, um, it's one of the most interesting parts of, of us as people. Uh, you once told me about it. I went and looked it up. It was a documentary made for, I think, New York Times, I think, about the kids trying to make the perfect, um, what am I trying to say here? Deep fakes. Oh, that. Yeah, 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 yeah. And yeah, and they were interviewing this kid you know, who was like trying to get the audio portion to be able to create a deep fake of anyone. So if you know what a deep fake is, it just means that you can like basically say or type whatever you want. It's a very high end version of face swap for like Instagram, where you type in information or say information, and then the AI takes that information, spoken or, or written, and uses a database from a famous person like you know Trump or Obama or something like that, where there's a lot of data on, and then uses that to create a, a visual and audio avatar of that person saying 
whatever you want them to say. Yeah. And that's about to start causing a whole bunch of trouble. Yeah. Because as somebody else said, a lie travels much faster than the truth. You know, you can have an important figure say anything, and by the time it's debunked, it's too late. You know, 100 million people have bought in. And people have a hard time reversing course after they've bought in. So it's just a little scary. <laughs> but when you're talking about technology and not asking ourselves, should we do this just because we can? Mm-hmm. There was that kid, and you could just see it in his eyes. He was just so fixated on this technical problem of like, I'm going to make this perfect. No one's cracked a deep fake audio before I'm going to. And the reporter's like, eh, are you sure you wanted to do that? And he's like, yeah, I gotta, he, he couldn't. Yeah. And, he, and in a way, I also believe that if it's not him, it will be somebody else. So mm-hmm. I don't know. All of this is a yeah, genie it was. They were the talking about, there was, there was something in the, there, you couldn't hear it, but there was some uh, artifact left mm-hmm. in the file that could point to the fact that it was a deep fake and not real. Mm-hmm. And, and the, the interviewer was asking him, well, why, why do you want to remove that if that's something that could tell us it's a deep fake? And the kid said, because it's not perfect. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and it has to be perfect. That's great. It's like, oh, jeez, man. <laughs> and continuing on with this uh, subject of ethics and science, the other thing I was going to recommend, uh, Human Nature, which I think is produced maybe originally for PBS, but it's on Netflix. And it's largely to do with genetic engineering, mostly around CRISPR. And you, know, you read about this in the news every day. I think a lot of people have a sense of it. But this documentary by Adam Bolt is just so well presented, so well written. Mother Nature gave us something that's richer than our imagination. We saw a very peculiar pattern. Never seen anything like this before. remember him saying, remember this word, CRISPR. We've never had the ability to change the fundamental chemical nature of who we are, and now we do. And what do we do with that? The graphics are beautiful and do what graphics should do, what good design should do. They take something really complicated and make it really understandable. Yeah, because we've, we've all heard about CRISPR and all heard about what it's capable of, but most people don't even know that CRISPR stands for Clustered Regularly Interspersed Short Palindromic Repeats. <laughs> <laughs> and the secret of that is that a lot of these things come from uh, viral DNA, ancient viral DNA, but they're sections that just repeat over and over and over inside of our DNA. And the way that it is used in genetic engineering is you can use this other protein called uh, Cas9 to go in and clip precisely. Since you know there's a repeat, it can get the little molecular scissors in there and cut right where that repeat starts a non-repeat. And that's the part of the information that you want. That's the important one. And that is what's led to this precision. Should we really be manipulating the heredity of future generations given our lack of knowledge about so many things. I don't know where you draw the line between not having albinism and deciding your kid needs to be an extra foot taller so they can be a good oarsman and go to Yale. Where is that line? Who's going to draw that? Anything that will stop my child from suffering, I'm for. You know, draw this ethical line wherever you want, but don't draw it in front of my disease. 
what does that mean for this science where we have the capacity to edit in some things that we think are important? Are we playing God? You don't realize it's disruptive until you look backward. Often you don't realize that you're in the middle of a revolution until after the revolution has occurred. Uh, they're comparing the beginnings of genetic engineering to the beginning of automobiles. The first automobiles were really, I mean, the ex automobiles existed before Henry Ford, but they were complicated and big and you couldn't get spare parts for them and, you know, only for the rich. And same was true for genetic sequencing, just computing, the computing power necessary, uh, the amount of times you would have to try something to try to get a a gene edit to stick using the old technology was like, they had like a 2% success rate before CRISPR. It, it, it's really about bringing the industrial, the industrial process to gene editing. Uh, so there's a sequence in there that if you see it, I want you to pay attention to. Where they're talking about the commercialization, the democratization of all this technology. And they're showing footage of them building, you know, the factory for the first Model T, and you're just watching one part after another and roll off, roll off, and they're all interchangeable, and man, it's flying together fast. It's driving the price down. And then they intercut that with a private lab somewhere who engineers custom order strands of RNA for people doing genetic engineering. That's just one. You need the RNA strand and then use CRISPR and Cas9 to insert it, okay? But the people that are making these RNA strands don't even really know what they're for. They just get people order it like a menu say like, here's a genetic sequence. I need a bunch of RNA. Here's the sequence, build it. So they're cutting between these Ford model T assembly lines and a bunch of, you know, one of these RNA labs and a bunch of tubes and hoses and little pipettes everywhere. And as the camera is going by, I see that one <laughs> that the, these, these giant jars of, liquid labeled G A T C which are the uh, nucleotides mm -hmm. cytokine, guanine, adenine, thymine, the basics of DNA right. and just kind of seeing it like that like here's a jar of nucleotides and it goes into a machine here anyway it makes an RNA strand and just spits them out over and over and over again like an assembly line I'm like I don't know why that struck me mm -hmm. but like the the tools of the basis of life being treated like an inexhaustible resource, an interchangeable resource, like rivets, screws, yeah. <laughs> bolts. <laughs> I mean, when I, that image really hit me for some reason. I thought, oh man, we're here. This is happening. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And you introduced us to another great show that we just watched the entire <laughs> thing love on the spectrum love on the on spectrum Netflix. yeah it's great documentary series about people on the autistic spectrum trying to find a mate even though i'm on the spectrum i'm capable of falling in love well i hope we can help you achieve that i really hope so too i seriously do this series follows young adults on the autism spectrum as they navigate the confusing world of relationships and dating. Shall we pay for ours separately or something? What I love about it is that, you know, I, I told you yesterday that you, you come away from this thinking, wow, autistic people aren't the weird ones. We're the weird ones. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. They're so 
they're so straightforward and honest and, and it's and it's easy to understand why why it's hard to understand most of human behavior and yeah. to and to figure out how to fit in when we do so much lying. Exactly. That's the part that strikes you. When they're on the first time I watched I watched this whole series twice now. The first time through I was just I was just really struck by I'm still struck by uh, you know, they hear these two people on a date it's always awkward. That's all. That can always be a little weird. And these are people who specifically have a problem with this kind of thing, but because of their awareness of this, because of their training and you know, whatnot, um, they're really direct with each other in an incredibly honest way. And it has nothing to do with anyone being less emotional, which I think is the big, uh, misnomer about people on the spectrum. They are just as emotional, if not more, um, and frequently just as intelligent as anyone else, but but they don't understand this thing that the rest of us do, where we tell little white lies, and you know choose not to share certain things and cover certain things. And there's lots of good reasons to do that, but you you, you kind of feel like having to explain to them what normal is means to lie. A lot of people are age aren't interested in commitment. They're only interested in intercourse. <laughs> Finding love can be hard for anyone. Do you feel anything about me? Um. Some girls don't feel like dating someone with disabilities. <sighs> that was too awkward. Yeah, there was a great scene in the last episode where caseworker is talking to a fellow about a date that he just had, and, and he says... Um, I think I think uh, she likes me. And she said, well, have you been out again? And he said, uh, well, I asked her out, but she sent this text. And the text said, maybe not today. I'm busy. Mm-hmm. And she goes, do you think that that means that she might want to go out again on a day she's not busy? Mm-hmm. And he goes, yes, I think so. And, she, and then <laughs> so she takes a piece of paper and a pen and she has to draw pictures and explain very, very carefully uh what how to read subtext mm-hmm. and he's rightfully very confused yeah 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 because on the, the text of it looks like there's a possibility right. and then and she has to explain sometimes people are afraid to say exactly what they mean right yeah. and then and for all of them they i don't think they have they don't have that problem they're kind of like why would you be afraid to say what you think mm-hmm. <laughs> they all they always say what they think yeah yeah <laughs> well have you been reading anything yeah, I've been reading a few things. Um, the one that comes to mind is called The Demon and the Machine by Paul Davies. And Paul is uh, on the board of, a, of advisors for Medi, which is this organization that I've joined the board of directors for. Um, Doug Vaykoch, who you might remember from our second season, uh, he works, he founded Messaging Extraterrestrial Intelligence. And so I've been getting to know all the people on the board and, and Paul wrote this book um, about how physicists are finally trying to resolve um, the problem with the second law of thermodynamics, which deals with inertia because life seems to be the only thing in the known universe that, that um, counterdicts that law. Uh, And he's trying to explain for the layman uh, 
how this new theory has to do with the relationship between matter and information. Mm. And I'm not nearly far enough into this book to, to be able to explain to you <laughs> what that relationship is, but it's, uh, it's, it's an interesting read. What else? Um, what else? Uh, oh, I'm reading, um, I'm reading a book of short stories by, I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly, Xixin Lu. He's a Chinese uh, science fiction writer who recently won all the big awards a couple of years ago for The Three-Body Problem, which mm-hmm. is actually a, a trilogy. Mm-hmm. Three-Body Problem is the first book in the trilogy. I read the entire trilogy straight through. And um, he is usually translated uh, by uh, Ken... Lou, oh okay, yeah. His name is, um, who's also a great writer. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this one is by someone else. Um, can't quite remember his name, but um, yeah, interesting book of, of short stories. Um, really, just gigantic imagination. This guy. What's it called again? Oh yeah, it's called "To Hold Up the Sky." Mm. Ever since the last drop, I've still been reading Harper's, mm-hmm. like short form. I don't have the patience these days for a novel for some reason it's an essay called making meaning by garth greenbell uh, subtitled against relevance in art when my friends and i consign new releases on the basis of their subject matter to the category of irrelevant things we are making another kind of presumption that seems deeply harmful to me we are presuming to know what we need from art It's as though we want to engineer an encounter with art the way we might engineer an encounter on a dating app, filtering by attributes we're sure we want in a partner, a certain age or height or race. My problem with those apps is not just that swiping left is always a degraded response to another person, but also that we never know as much about our own desires as we think we do. One of the great gifts and challenges of desire is that it illuminates who we are in unexpected ways. And it's something that's always been kind of a bee in my bonnet, uh, that art has to be relevant. I think it's a really reductive and limiting kind of way to approach things. You know, like, well, should we be hearing this now? How does it affect now? And I think his his central point, which I agree with, is that it's, it's, it's a reflection of sort of like the, the media bubble we live in, the curated reality that we all live in. If you're only looking for relevant art, you're kind of looking for art that most likely supports some preconception that you already have. And his perspective is interesting because, you know, self-identifies as, you know, he's an African-American, self-identifies as queer. He gets a lot of flack from colleagues saying, you know, why are you even uh, writing an essay about a white heteronormative, you know, author, you know, Mm -hmm. like that isn't our story. And he's like, exactly. If we all just pay attention to only our own stories, we're just going to get more and more siloed and, the whole and the point is, yeah. If 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 you are, ideally, you know, if you are white heteronormative, you should probably be seeking out something outside that. If you're a curious person, I think that's what art is for. 
It has that ability to sort of uh, create these invisible bridges and make access to other people's realities really, really, you know, uh, direct. Mm -hmm. And I don't know. It's, it's a subject that I've been uh, wanting to someone to take on for a while, and I haven't seen much out, out there about it. Uh, yeah, that's my least favorite question to be asked when I'm pitching. Mm -hmm. You know, when, when you're in these rooms with these executives and you're pitching your show or your movie and they're like, they always like to ask, why now? Why should this be done now? I'm like, because it's a good fucking script, man. <laughs> <laughs> have you tried that? I'm, I'm curious. Oh, here's, here's a question. I'm curious. What do you say when they ask that? Do you Do you feel like you have to play their game and like, say well i think because blah or do you say because it's a good fucking script man and <laughs> i like... don't say that <laughs> <laughs> i'm usually these days you know i'm, I'm prepared for that question and right either it's a lot of bullshit or it's or it's it's relevant uh -huh. everybody wants to do something relevant in tv everybody wants to do that you know i don't know it's it's funny how so little of it actually is though yeah because most of it's probably some kind of a word game to make it sound relevant mm -hmm. so you mm -hmm. can satisfy the suits right. and make them think that because yeah, I don't even know if they know mm -hmm. I think they want someone to comfort them and tell them it's going to be okay <laughs> <laughs> you can give your money to me this is totally relevant <laughs> uh, yeah there's more I could go on about it but then I'll get kind of nerdy uh, you know stuff about form versus subject matter uh, talk versus contemplation you know like having uh, the subject matter is where we seem to all be stuck on. That's the part you want to talk about. But form is an almost unconscious aesthetic thing that is kind of the point of art, you know, it's really rich in unconscious intellectual meaning. It's full of it. And we're kind of getting this culture now where that the, where I, what I think is the better part of art is kind of being ignored, mm. you know, that the power of, um, you know, it's it's a poem versus an essay. Mm -hmm. And so much of what I see on TV and in film is uh, audiovisual essays. You know, people that are there to make a point. And right. here's a bunch of information to sell my point and support my point. Um, it's why I like, um, you know, surrealism. And I can trust that to not, you know, have an agenda. I don't mm -hmm. know of any surrealists with an agenda. <laughs> I think about it. <laughs> They're kind of the anti-agenda movement. Apple Plus. Oh, yeah. This uh, documentary series called Becoming You. Can you see? There are days in every child's life that change who they are forever. This is the extraordinary story of how we learn to talk. Think. What's that, Mommy? It's a doggy. Why? Why? Why, Daddy? And love. This is your new baby brother. From the moment we're born to when we turn five. Um, very well done. It's about the first 2,000 days of a human's life, and they shoot children all over the world uh, for this documentary series. And it's just about how we go from 
being this helpless thing to the most physically diverse animal on the planet in, mm-hmm. in five years. Mm-hmm. And it's, um, it's so well shot. Uh, Olivia Coleman d- is the narrator. She's great. Um, and we've really been enjoying it. There's a, um, we also got into this, this documentary series, um, on Netflix called, uh, we are the champions. Oh. <laughs> uh, that's about, there's only, they've only done about six episodes so far. And it's about weird contests around the world. And rain Wilson narrates it. And the writing is really, if good. you, if you watch only one, start with the episode on dancing dogs and listen to what rain Wilson does with the most ridiculous copy that has ever been handed to, to an actor. He just owns it so well. Um, and it's, it's, it's a very, really enjoyable, uh, fun, whimsical show about yeah. real people doing really weird things. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great sort of like a palate cleanser for all the more serious science-y stuff I've recommended so far. It's a tremendous amount of fun. There's the pep reading contest. It's just painful to watch. <laughs> yeah. And there's that dude who I want to follow up on. What's the, I can't remember his name, but he, he wins. I'm giving, I won't give away his name because I'll right. give the ending away. But there's something wrong with that guy. Yeah. Like all these other chili pepper eating contestants have done this over and over and over again. And by the end, I mean, they're physically ill. It's, I mean, you can see the struggle. You can see the pain. Yeah. And there's one dude up there who's eating these things like they're just like, Sweet bell peppers. Yeah. No reaction. There's something wrong with him. Yeah. I, I And back to our thing about DNA, I bet there's something going on genetically. Some kind of mutation. Yeah. Because yeah. there's no way you can eat what he's eating and have no reaction. Unless he's also like a Zen master, which I don't think he is. <laughs> he doesn't look like one. <laughs> but, or he's, or he's, insane i mean <laughs> i can't figure it out but he's kind of creepy to watch yeah yeah but actually it's it's but the, the individual stories in there are wonderful and yeah that's, that's a good one we are the champions and for music uh sharon started playing for me lady smith black mambazo mm-hmm. oh you know him yeah oh okay what do you know about him not much other than probably most people have heard them. Everyone's heard them because they were the backup band for a lot of some Paul Simon stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, well, I'll just play a little, play a little bit of it. It's so clean. Yeah. <laughs> it's this, the, the tonicness of it mm-hmm. is so precise and warm. And with that level of precision, you'd think that there would be a risk of it sounding kind of robotic. Mm-hmm. But it isn't. It's just the most gorgeous. Yeah. It's the most gorgeous sound. And I started, we had this conversation, Sharon and I, about. Um, you know, this is that comes from an African spiritual, you know, place, and I couldn't stop thinking about how that sound is the sound of their relationship to the unseen, to the invisible world, and 
the way I interpret it anyway, is that for them, the relationship is pretty concrete. It feels like people who are deeply connected to the earth, to animal spirits, because they're largely animist. Uh, but for them, I don't get the sense of awesomeness and mystery. Not to say that any of those are good things that I do from Western Christian choral singing mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm going somewhere with this because what we contrasted it with was this music, which is actually uh, former Soviet Georgia. It's a funeral song called Zari. And what's interesting about it is that it can't be rehearsed. It can only be sung at funerals. Mm. So the men see each other whenever there's a funeral and that's your time to, to sing this. And it sounds vaguely Gregorian, but anyone who's been to, any uh, Western church, especially maybe Catholic or Episcopal, will kind of recognize this sound. hear some people in that group kind of correcting mm. which is kind of a cool thing as 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 you listen to it everyone hits the chord and there's a couple of voices that sort of oh mm-hmm. and finds its center again because maybe this wasn't the way they did it last time mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but there's this sort of uh, flocking psychology to the way they find the, their their rhythms and their their harmonies. I mean, they kind of know it, but not perfectly. So it's this ingrained sense memory of how do you perform this? So, so it'll be different every time. Hmm. I was kind of struck between the difference between that and the Ladysmith, the Georgian stuff, the, the Western stuff. Sounds like a the relationship to the unseen is one of awesomeness. It's one of distance. It's one of, can you hear us out there? We're alone here. It's an invitation to mystery. It's, um, it's meant to fill up those big vaulted ceilings Mm -hmm. and echo all over the cathedral. Right. Mm -hmm. In hopes that he with a capital H will hear it. And, and and smile upon you, <laughs> but it just—I hadn't thought—I never thought of it before. When we went back and forth, contrasting, you know, Western choral music and the um, sort of African spiritual music, and I don't know, something about it really hit me. Mm. That's my music recommendation. And if you want to have some fun and challenge yourself a little bit out there. I highly recommend uh, going to iTunes or wherever you get your music and downloading, purchasing 
The Secret Museum of Mankind. It's a series of field recordings, mostly from the anywhere from the 20s to the 50s, uh, of music all around the world. You can find a little bit of everything there. You can find uh, uh, Mexican wedding music. You can find African funeral music. Find uh, Inuit uh, music. I mean, it's just it's a great thing to put on, and it just it lists you out of whatever musical comfort bubble you were probably in, because I think we all are. It takes you someplace unexpected and new. So, Secret Museum of Mankind. It's an anthology series. I highly recommend it. Great. And I just got one more TV recommendation I want to throw in mm-hmm. before we end. You, can you tell I've been watching a lot of TV during the pandemic? <laughs> um, our friend KK turned us on to this beautiful show. It's a limited series called Normal People. You know, when we were together in first year of college. That was kind of a perfect time in my life, to be honest. It'd be awkward if something happened with us. No one would have to know. I didn't know your mom worked in the Sheridan's house. What's Marianne like in her natural habitat? I don't know. I don't see much of her. And it's on Hulu. It's based on a book. And it's it's so simple. You watch the first episode and you think, okay, there's a love story about two young people in high school. Why do I care? But then you keep going and you realize that, first of all, these are two extraordinarily talented young actors. Her new boyfriend is more in line with her social class. Are you dating anyone problematic at the moment? I haven't had a midnight call from you in a while. And they're only half-hour episodes. And somehow the show breathes in a way that I've never seen anything else on TV really do. Uh, And you get to watch this this love story take place over the course of about four years and they're just showing you little cross sections of the relationship and um, it's extremely well done it is it is heartbreaking it is uh, heartwarming Uh, highly 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 recommend you check out normal people on hulu and you, I don't know if you just mentioned this or not, but uh, you are especially knocked out by the talent of this very young actor and actresses. Yeah, yeah. This, um, you know, let me look this up. While, he, while he's looking that up, I will tell you that I've been listening to Anson vacillate between praising them and hating them the past couple of days. He's <laughs> like, they are so good. So good. I hate them. How can they be so good so young? <laughs> Daisy Edgar Jones... And Paul Mescal. Um, I believe she's British. He's Irish. It takes place in Ireland. Um, and yeah, it's, it is, um, I just love it when things are <laughs> effortless or seemingly effortless. We know mm-hmm. filmmaking is hard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but when you can, when, when somebody makes something that, that just, seems to float on the air. Um, 
there's a there's a beauty to that form, you know, that is unlike unlike anything else. You know, it's like hearing that that great aria mm-hmm. um, echo in the in the in the concert hall and and just seeming to flow out of the singer. You know, um, I really like the show a lot. Well, we can't uh, end there without mentioning the greatest film I've seen in years and maybe my whole life, which we watched just the other day. <laughs> Bill and Ted face the music. That was fun. <laughs> that was fun. Yeah, it brought back memories. Yeah, and it made us. It made if you grew up with the early Bill and Ted, if you're young enough to see that in the theater, seeing new Bill and Ted is going to make you feel kind of old. Yeah, yeah. There's there's a moment in the movie towards the beginning of the movie where you see video footage of them from the original movie, and it is sh- shocking yeah. how young they look. <laughs> I know they were because they were because they were kids. Yeah, yeah. You know, but it, it, Alex Winter. Yeah, Alex Winter and Keanu Reeves. Yeah, yeah. They're they're really good friends in real life, and it shows. And I had a revelation watching this thing that I realized a lot of Keanu Reeves appeal comes from acting like the family dog. <laughs> uh, and I love Keanu Reeves. I, I really sincerely do. I think he's awesome. I think he's an awesome human being. But if you watch him, especially when he's doing his, here's the thing. I don't know which one he is. Is he Bill or is he dead? I can never remember either. <laughs> you know what? I think that's intentional. I don't know it because <laughs> it doesn't matter. <laughs> right. I don't think it matters which one is Bill and which one is Ted. Anyway, uh, Keanu as Bill or Ted. We're not sure which. Uh, he's just so, he's like, he's present. He's only in the moment. He's very loyal. <laughs> and when he hears something he doesn't understand, he does that sort of Keanu Reeves trademark cock of the head with a, what? <laughs> it's the same thing that we all go, oh, when we see a puppy do it. <laughs> <laughs> And he does, he has that energy, you know, like you can't, you can't dislike him. <laughs> uh, and I think, and I think that's it. Yeah. Unless you want to talk about jujitsu, which I don't think we should. No. God, that was a piece of shit. <laughs> the Well is produced, recorded, and edited by Anson Mount and me, Brandon Edgens. Theme music written by Jonathan Myberg of Shearwater and performed by me, Brandon Edgens. Until next time, have a great time. <laughs>